and welcome to our wrap-up of Melbourne International Film Festival 2018. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And today we're going to be looking at the many highs and the few low points of this year's festival. We're going to be focusing particularly on Happy as Lazaro. Oh, are we going to do the thing? Okay, we'll do it. Sorry, sorry. Uh, Lazaro. <laughs> Lazaro. Lazaro. <laughs> oh, right. okay. uh, Zama and Lee Chang-dong's Burning. <laughs> Happy as Lazaro is a tale of um, about Lazaro, who's a young peasant boy living in like early 1990s Italy. I think to gather by the size of the mobile phones. Yeah, or you know, late. 80s. Late 80s, oh, but possibly. Yeah. Worth, yeah, anyway. And well, this is what's really interesting is that the time is, seems to be deliberately distorted for the first half of this film, and then we realise why, as in a narrative revelation. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That's a really important point. Um, so he's a very good guy, and he's very generous and uh, hardworking, and he's often mistaken for being simple minded because of these um, personality traits. And he meets uh, this man called Tancredi, who's a young nobleman who's cursed by his imagination. Life in their isolated pastoral village called Inviolata um, is dominated by uh, Tancredi's mother, the uh, mean Marquesa Alfonso de Luna, who's the queen of, known as the Queen of Cigarettes. Tancredi and Lazaro have a sort of bond within this very strange relationship. Eventually, um, Tancredi asks Lazaro to help stage his own kidnapping, and this alliance um, is seen as very different by both parties, and it ends up spiraling off, spiraling off into some very unexpected territory. But this was a stand-up for both of you, I gather. Yes, I loved it. There is a moment about halfway through the film where something sort of uh, abrupt happens in the narrative and it was amazing to see this in a myth audience. Yes, it was. Because the audience literally gasped. Oh, yeah, yeah, in my screening. Yeah, 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 that was my single highlight of myth. (laughs) Yeah, 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 which was wonderful. And it was like, yes, the power of film uh, is alive in this movie. (laughs) Um, And uh, look, what I really loved about it is how it starts off as this sort of neo-realist portrait of labour relations on this farm, really. You've got these working class characters, there's maybe 30 or 40 of these people, all sort of seemingly played by amateur actors or non-professionals. Um, and they sort of do the manual labour for this marquise, um, the cigarettes. Um, and uh, Lazaro being, um, as the as she says at one point in the marquise, she says, uh, the workers exploit Lazaro the way I exploit the workers. So he's sort of like, he goes around, he does everything, like literally everything, without any, he sort of just happily, you know, smiles and nods and goes. He's a very good man, as the mm. film tells us. So it starts as this sort of neo-realist portrait, but then it sort of shifts gears into a magical realist um, religious story. And I just really loved how that, played out over the course of the film. Yeah, and I loved how even when it shifts gears into a magical realist exploration of the characters and then it becomes more realist again, it's an interesting kind of formal trajectory in the film's narrative trajectory that it doesn't lose sight of this worker force that the film is dealing with and that it's all very much a part of it and that it becomes, I feel, quite... I mean, it's a sombre film, but it's also inventive and very funny. But it becomes, it seems to have this dangerous, really dangerous side to it by about halfway through, three quarters through. And that was extremely powerful for me. 
Yeah, well, my, my favourite thing about it, I think, was the fact that they that Alice Rowacker, the director and writer, uh, seemed to uh, use a folk fairy tale m- mode as a m- method of telling a, fer- a working class story mm-hmm. in a way. So it's almost like going back to the ancestors of these people and how they would have told this story and then they may have misremembered or it may have been changed through retelling. And so we get kind of this interesting story about this almost Christ-like figure in a way and mm-hmm. that he's kind of he doesn't exploit anybody and he seems to not notice that he's suffering or doesn't seem to... Well, it's based on the story of St. Francis, isn't it? Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it might... Yeah, sorry, I hadn't read that, but it makes total sense now you mention it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's interesting that you mention like a, a folk storytelling kind of thing because that's true and we do have that and we have that suggestion that, you know, it, there's an oral history to their community and to this story. But there's a very interesting motif that we see a few times where they refer to a newspaper article that they've framed and so we have that reference point as well where they're um, kind of balancing out their oral storytelling with this documentation. Yeah, and the exploitation of workers is usually an oral story orally told. Yes, yeah, because yeah, certain forces don't like to <laughs> yeah. make note of it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, I... I uh, agree with all of this. Um, I loved the cinematography. It's filmed on 16mm, which you can mm-hmm. really... There's sort of this wonderful, grainy, sort of dreamlike ambience to the images. The images mm. are beautiful. And just on that sort of magic realist bent, my my favourite, probably my favourite, a highlight of the film is when the workers in the city, um, they go visit this church and there's this beautiful religious music being performed and the church owner sort of or or one of the nuns who's working there goes up to this group of sort of ragtag working class folk and says oh you know get out get out this is a private space get out get out of the church so they all leave and they're sort of walking off and the music from the church follows them and I found that quite extraordinary, just as a, an audiovisual manifestation of, you know, a Christian, I guess, allegory about goodness and, mm-hmm. you know, do, being morally right, that kind of thing. The way that played out in terms of just, you could almost watch the, the music, or you certainly heard the music, leave the ch- this church space and then follow the people who were clearly the good you know, quote unquote, good characters. Yeah, it was a very powerful, like, sensory exactly. manifestation of that, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And like this idea that even though religion, uh, you know, as an institution, had essentially rejected them in that moment, that the the music is the comforting element here. And I don't know whether that's a comment on religion. Mm. You know, it might not go that far, but just that idea that in their life and also in the life of the film, that music is what is. The, exactly, you know, and it's class. a manifestation of. I mean, if we if we want to get very religious here, you could argue that it's a manifestation of Christ, in the way that the yeah the institution is not. So that was really interesting. I found, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really interesting. I took it as being the soul of Italy. I thought this was yeah, like Italy telling its story to itself, yeah. and so yeah, yeah. the fact that Lazaro, you know, will work hard and do all this sort of selfless stuff for the benefit of these community, even though th- at times Alice. Rowaka kind of steers him on the fringes of like refugees moving through Italy in modern day Rome or no sorry it wasn't Rome it was Lombardy or some it was the city in Lombardy I'm not sure which one was it Milan I'm not even sure it doesn't really matter I I suppose it could just be any urban area Uh, and then you know he kind of becomes this person who doesn't exist he's a stateless person with no papers he doesn't have a bank account he doesn't understand modern society but you know, is this like you know Alice Rowacker talking, telling Italy this is what's happened to us that we've lost our way and this is what we need to think of is being selfless like Lazaro. 
Yeah, I don't know. That's a really tricky problem. Yeah, it is. I don't know. I might be putting words in their mouth. I'm not sure. That's but yeah, no, that, that, and you know, that simplicity was felt quite radical when watching this. The other thing I just want to mention too is this notion of the passage of time, which is instrumental to this film because the narrative jumps forward decades, decades and decades. And so you see a lot of these characters uh, suddenly as they're growing up. As a forty, I would say about forty years. Yeah, no I thought it was fifty. I thought it was twenty. Yeah, I was well, thinking thirty. If we got late eighties, but if he's a t- if the Marquis de Cigarettes' <laughs> son <laughs> is like what a Thank twenty, but he's he's really what fifty. Well, I mean, oh, he, forty maybe he is about, could have been. Yeah. He's drunk a lot. There's, yeah, there's a lot he's of had, he's lived a hard life. He's yeah. lived a yeah. hard life. I mean, the others, and you yeah, think yeah. about like the boy, obviously, who's now in his maybe mid-twenties, yep. I kind of took him as the... the yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Okay. That marker of time. Um, okay, but, um, yeah, okay, interesting. But anyway, that notion of um, characters ageing where Lazaro does not, yes. I found very weirdly emotionally moving. <laughs> yeah, well, it was for them, watching them on, like, with their expressions when they saw him and yeah. reacting different, yep. very differently. We don't have to mention what occurred, but... Um, how did you take the ending? Because for a film, mm. I find that often myth films can be these completely transformative journeys that bring you along with them and can be comp- like stunning and absorbing. But the end is always a risk. Yeah. And that is a question that I just wanted to kind of ask about this film. I'm not sure what my response is. Yes. To me, I found the ending like the natural conclusion of, of this story and the the what I guess the filmmakers were saying. Like I sort of I saw how this was the natural ending of their what they were saying about Lazaro and his being a good man. Uh, having said that, and I'm about not, society, yeah, exactly. The, the, yeah, um, anti-resolution. Uh, but having said that, I am not sure that I'm hundred percent across the wolf. Symbology. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we should just say wolves do play a fairly significant sp- symbolic role mm. in this film. They do, yeah. What did you think, Andy? Of the ending? Yeah. Uh, I found it satisfying. I thought I, this had been so built up because when I was at Cannes, this was like the film everyone was talking about and I missed right. it because you can never get across everything. There's always you know so many things playing and you was going to miss something. So my expectations were really, really high. And so I think it might have been a bit too high. I was asking too much of it. Right. <laughs> Even though it was a wonderful film. It's kind film. of impossible to ask anything of a film like this because you just don't know what it's going to offer. Mm, yeah. Right? So, anyway. I mean, it, it won this uh, screenplay award, which I think... Oh, I think it deserves. So much, I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great yeah. film. Yeah. Yeah, same. Señora mía, mi Marta. El gobernador me dice que no falta mucho para mi partida. Don Diego de Zama. Mensaje para Diego de Zama. Nos han dicho de un tal Vicuña.
Okay, so Zama is the new film from Argentinian auteur Lucretia Martel. Um, this is her first film in a long while, and the Myth Program Guide describes it as a singularly dreamlike voyage into the outer limits of historical fiction. It's an adaptation of Antonio Di Benedetto's 1956 Argentinian novel, centres on Don Diego de Zama, played by Daniel Jimenez Cacho, an 18th century Nicely done. Sp- thank you. An 18th century Spanish magistrate marooned in a far-flung South American outpost where he loses touch with civilization and sanity. Now, this has gained some recognition on the film festival circuit, including winning the Worldview New Genre Development Award at the Rotterdam Film Festival. Andy, did you find its depiction of colonialism insightful? I did, yeah. It was. Yeah, it was it's a bizarre film. I still I'm still it's one of the ones that's lingered with me the most, I think, that I've seen. Because I came into this having read five star reviews from Pete Bradshaw and The Guardian, five star reviews all over the place. Film spotting had said it was one of the best films of the year so far and almost no one was gonna get a chance to see it because it wasn't gonna get a wide release and here it was at MIF and I was like, brilliant, okay. This is going to be great. And uh, on a, the episode before last, I singled it out as my most anticipated one yet of, from Myth. Very anticipated by me also. Hotly. Mm. Yeah. And so I sat down going, oh, this is going to be brilliant. And it was. It was really, really good. But also it was quite strange in the way that it, it hewed very closely to natural light, to things happening at an unforced pace, to opening up to the complexity of the colonial outpost and seeing it through Zama's eyes in which he's constantly being frustrated by his ambition and his desire to get back to Spain and the bureaucracy associated with being a magistrate and the pathetic level of power he actually has there given that he has no real connection with anybody there and he's kind of strutting around looking ridiculous, spying on women on the beach, getting chased off by them and having all these sort of farcical interactions with these these people. And then about two-thirds of the way through, he leaves the outpost and things start getting really 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 interesting like visually striking unexpected dreamlike um and that's where i think martel really takes off and the film becomes i you know i understood why everyone was getting so excited about it yeah I right love the ending i mean you the know last third just, i should say yeah we've mm. just talked about um happy as lazaro and this idea of like <laughs> lazaro <laughs> this idea of a strange kind of evocation of history through a dreamlike lens or you know a non-straightforward presentation of a story which occurs in both of these films and i think that it was stunning i loved summer i loved that it is this very serious story and exploration of a character and all of the implications of what he does and what is done to him but it's also very funny like I yeah. laughed a mm. lot from the very beginning, not all the time. Like I wasn't, um, you know, head over heels or anything, but it's very funny. It's very, very clever. And I think places that kind of humor in a great kind of yeah, rhythm throughout. That is a really good script. point. Yeah. Because the times I laughed most was abruptly shifted. Yeah. Like the tone changed like that. Yeah, it wasn't the same style of humour no. at all throughout it. And so I just feel like, I mean, maybe that's why she won Best New Genre Script or something, whatever it is, which no, seems... It certainly felt new. Yeah. Really strange because, yeah, like how do you describe what this film is? I don't know. Yeah, it's tricky and people have struggled. I mean, I was reading about it online and everyone's like, oh, well, it's kind of like about a colonial story and it could be true, but also it's funny and also it's really serious and also it's like an ethnographic study and also... It's, yeah, yeah, in my um, tweet about the film, I said... 
Zama reckons with Spanish colonial responsibility through the prism of a magical fever dream, countering a man's increasing futility with an intensification of cinema's textures, colours and sounds. Utterly absorbing and in moments exquisitely funny. Christ, that's one tweet? One tweet. Jeez, nice use of characters. Oh, thank you. But like that is kind of says what the film did to me in a very, you know, a, a few words because it was very powerful, mm. extraordinary. I felt I didn't, you know, you don't really associate or identify with Zama. No. Until that should... final third maybe when you do, when you realise what is happening, when yeah. you get a fuller mm. picture of like his kind of role in the area. That final shot was so, you know, again, when we're thinking about like where does a film go and how does a film end and is a film worthy of its ending, that is a question that I always ask myself because I think that sometimes films are not worthy of their endings. But I think that this one was and that you can kind of see the richness in that final shot and that it's a kind of a joke as well, but it's not... Um, you know, demoralising the story or the characters in any way. I've yeah. heard a lot about this final shot. Right. Yeah, that yeah, rich yeah, yeah. green mm. on the water. Yep. You know, I can't say anything else. No. Beyond the green. It no. just takes my breath away. Yeah. No, one of the most striking things I found about it was, it sounds really kind of boring to say, but the way she would structure a frame, the way she put people in the frame, <laughs> it was so painterly. It was so carefully composed. Yeah. There were such subtle shifts in focus between characters as they were, the, you know, they, they became the subjects of conversations, people moving in and out. Mm-hmm. There were these so many dark rooms and sections of the frame were unknown or, you know, uh, Zama was obviously alienated by a lot of the stuff that was happening. Like the mise-en-scene of his room, and but then also his bed at one stage gets taken out and moved into a different part of the village and just the ludicrous display of this four-poster bed being carried around by these people. <laughs> yes. There was, yeah, there was a lot of moments of actually now I think back to it, more humour than I thought I think I felt at the time. But, yeah, God, what a filmmaker. She's amazing. Yeah, I love her work and I feel like in since Zama and maybe since the Twitter world has kind of been in charge of a lot of these stories and profiles that people have been saying wow Lucretia Martel is amazing let's rediscover her and she's got two films released or maybe just one on the Criterion collection um so she can her work can be seen some of it is a bit rare but like she's an incredible filmmaker um and I love her and also I'm just gonna fangirl a little bit and say that her style is impeccable have you seen Mm. her Oh, yeah, uh, hair and glasses. Hair and glasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah great combo. So, you know, she's doing it well. <laughs> cool. Yep. Um, so Zamet gets a wider release on September 27th. So like exciting. Yeah. I want to see it again. Yeah, um, I look forward to seeing it. And as a bit of a, just a back announce, Happy as Lazaro, Lazaro does not have a release date <laughs> as yet. Lee jong So Burning is uh, Lee Chang-dong's new film and it is about a man called Yong-soo who's a part-time worker and he bumps into a girl called Haimi in Seoul and they they used to live in the same neighbourhood and so they have this vague recollection of each other as children Um, and Haimi asks him to look after her cat while she goes on a trip to Africa and then when she returns she she comes back off the plane 
to meet Yong Su, but she bring, has a friend with her called Ben, who's this mysterious uh, Korean man she met while in Africa. Um, and instead of becoming a point of en- en- enmity, they, be- they form a strange threesome, and the dynamic uh, kind of spins out over the next two hours and makes for a really, really interesting drama. What I like you- that you say rather than um, it resulting in enmity because, you know, you can tell that um, Jong Su is never happy about this threesome. No, but he's also in a position, the dynamics, the power play between these three is interesting. For sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, I found, yeah, this was really interesting. And when when she comes back from uh, Africa with this uh, sort of hunting, Why was witch, she in Africa as well? Is that ever announced? No, she's always, like, she, well, right from the beginning, she was like, I really want to go there. Yeah, I've always wanted to go there. Oh, holiday, not a work yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just anyway, mm. um, I found like that added to the kind of just displacement of the audience well, yeah. from the narrative, right? And there are so many ambiguities yeah. in this yes, film. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. Which I find really interesting. Mm. But when she comes back and she brings this sort of hunky, rich, uh, playboy type with her the film sort of then becomes this weird I found it or I found myself anyway becoming increasingly more interested in this relationship between those two men like it seems to yeah 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 to, and that is an interesting transition so what starts as like a naturalistic I guess hangout film about like 20 somethings in Seoul turns into this weird mysterious enigmatic I mean, almost parable-like exploration of, uh, I don't know, manhood insecurity. You could uh, a million different Yeah, things. modern career. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. A big thing. yeah. <laughs> and I think, I mean, we should say this film is two and a half hours. And mm. so if Lee Chang-dong was only interested in that latter, you know, part of what you said, Anders, this would be shorter. But given that he has such a long setup in kind of just letting us hang as you say, hang out in Seoul for a little while yeah. and kind of get an understanding of what the like normal life there is. Um, that he, what he's doing is very purposeful in in contrasting that with his ultimate purpose. Mm. Um, yeah, which is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and we should point out it's an adaptation of Haruki Murakami's short story, Barn Burning, which is a mysterious name for the film for the first two hours. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is <laughs> then it, it becomes more apparent. an adaptation of Murakami and then also William Faulkner, right? Because William Faulkner's name and it's influence name check, comes up. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And I feel yeah. like that there – I haven't read the Murakami short story, but I feel like there's definitely an element of some, you know, strange goings-on in this film mm. that could definitely be connected with Faulkner's influence on literature. Yeah, I, I thought it was beautifully shot. Um, the sort of standout sequence or a standout sequence is this uh, one that takes place in this small town, uh, where the neighbourhood where they both grew up, which is within sort of spitting distance of the North Korean border. Uh, and you can hear sort of the propaganda announcements through the these sort of loudspeakers. You can sort of hear that on the film soundtrack occasionally. Uh, but it's amazing... Uh, scene where Jaime dances to Miles Davis, is it? Yeah, Jeanne-Rique. Yeah. And then it sort of starts as this really glamorous, um, beautiful, captivating moment. And then the sound, the music cuts off and we're left with the 
sort of awkward sound of just her, like the in film sound, and then she sort of and we realised that out. she was never dancing to no. music at all. Exactly, mm-hmm. she exactly. was always dancing to nothing. Exactly, and yeah. that I mean that's an interesting, uh, interesting undercutting of what cinema can do. And yeah. I mean that was amazing. It was just I don't know. It was an amazing scene. I thought it was a wonderful, wonderful film. I like that it sets up, you know, as you say, the focus on these two men and their relationship, but it kind of sets up uh, the protagonist and the antagonist. But we're not sure who yeah. is who, really, um, in that dynamic, right? Um, or, yeah, yeah, I feel it's like a sort of dynamic that feel, feels very natural. Like it's such an unusual arrangement and probably a lot of people in their lives have been in this situation where you still love somebody and they've fallen for somebody else and to be with that one person you like, you have to start getting used, used to this new dynamic in their lives. Yeah. And so it's really mined beautifully, but he somehow Lee Chang-dong gets inside their heads without ever be feeling invasive. He kind of puts them in these interesting environments like when Yong Su goes to Jaime's apartment to look after her cat, which may or may not even exist. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Another he, ambiguity. Yeah, so we just kind of watch him there in this environment or where he's back in his farmhouse where you know, he's still in the neighbourhood where they grew up. He acts differently, he moves differently and there's all these sort of beautiful observations where he kind of lets these sorts of these scenes play out and you kind of end up really getting to know them without them talking or explaining very much at all. Yeah, because you have this cat that may or may not exist. You never see it, but you you see like it's kind of you you see evidence of its existence and then uh, the phone calls that jong su receives that yes. may or may not be occurring yeah. because no one ever speaks on the other end of the line and then there is a payoff at the end and but how interesting is all that the rest of them yeah it is isn't it but yeah. all the rest of them you think well maybe he was just imagining all of these things may you know what of all of the things that occur in this narrative are his imagination. Is that the question? Anyway, it was a fascinating film for me. Yeah, I completely agree. It raises all sorts of questions um, and is content not to answer them, which I admired. And But at the same time, yeah, there's a lot to sort of grapple with there. It's definitely a film that you know, provokes post-film conversation, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And particularly if you're going to set a, a film about unresolved tensions anywhere near the border of North Korea in South Korea is a good place to do it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, so <laughs> look, thoroughly recommend it. Yeah, I do like it even more now that you guys have talked about it. Um, it uh, does not have a release date as yet, but do keep an eye out for it. Speaking of Korea, the Korean Film Festival opens at Acme on September 6 and runs until the 13th. Highlights include Chu Chang Min's thriller Seven Years of Night and No Chung Jiok's conspiracy thriller Golden Slumber, about a man who saves the life of a K-pop star only to witness the assassination of a presidential candidate. Over at the State Library of Victoria, the Big Bike Film Night is running a selection of cycling-themed short films on October 26, and the companion piece The Cycle Chic Film Festival about women in cycling showcases 10 short films on September 6. One of Cultural Capital's favourite films of the year so far, Phantom Thread, screens August 24th until September 4th at Acme. Paul Thomas Anderson's film is part of Fashion Week at Acme, which also includes the exclusive season of the documentary We Magella about the fashion house Maison Martin Magella, and John Simons, a modernist, about the retail revolution of menswear, and the fairly self-explanatory Mad Hatton. These films are screening from September 1 until 9. The Astor Theatre's resident cat, Duke, is going to want to take a night off on August 29th when the cinema hosts a dog-friendly screening of Wes Anderson's recent hit, Isle of Dogs. 
August 31st at the Astor, seems a 10-year anniversary screening of all two hours, 25 minutes of Sex in the City. Oh, my God, what? Yep, it's happening. The show? The movie. The movies. Oh. First movie. Two hours, 25 minutes. That's how long the first Sex and the City movie goes for. And finally, a double bill of Sicario and Sicario 2 on September 1. Hello, sorry to scare you like that. Um, <laughs> what's happening over at Cinematheque? So we've taken a break during the film festival, as I'm sure all of our fatigued listeners can understand. Um, but we're back this Wednesday, the 22nd of August, with a season on the Spaghetti Western Beyond Leone. So we're not screening a single Sergio Leone film. Oh, right. Uh, all directed by other directors, starring, no doubt, some familiar faces because a lot of the crew, our acting crew, were, was the same. Um, but we just tried to give exposure to the genre beyond those few iconic films. Um, but... As a, I mean, and Morricone is still involved in a lot of them, as um, I'm sure will make a lot of you happy. But on Tuesday, the 21st of August, we're doing a special event, um, a free talk at the Italian Institute of Culture in South Yarra uh, by Rolando Caputo on the spaghetti western genre. And so, you know, you can sign up to come along to that if you're interested. Uh, but I'm really excited about this season. Cool. Thank you. Uh, so, besides the films that we all saw together at MIF, or at least two out of the three of us saw, are there any other films that really stood out for you that maybe we didn't get around to see, given that there are there were a lot of films this year? <laughs> um, Elo, did you have any particular standouts? I really liked Censored, the film. It's about 60-something minutes by Sari Braithwaite, a document, Australian documentarian, historian, Sari's talked about it quite extensively and it screened at me along like before a larger panel discussion about kind of sex and censorship on with within cinema but she started it as kind of a way of liberating a lot of clips that had been excised from foreign films that were being imported into Australia between 1958 and 71 I think were the years but she kind of I think went in with the intention that like censorship is bad and like let's kind of oppose this big structure. But upon watching these clips over and over and over again, so there's thousands of them in the art and they're available for public viewing in the archive in Canberra. She had become overwhelmed with (laughs) to say violence and patriarchal like intent behind all of these clips is to simplify it quite a lot. So there's more to it. What she ended up making was not a film that like liberated these clips, but explored the reasons behind their production um, and some of the perhaps incentives that defined the way we consumed cinema for so many decades in our history and even through to now. The panel was accompanied by uh, the the screening. Sorry, was accompanied by a panel afterwards with Sari, the director of a film called Holiday, which screened at this year's MIF. Um, Isabella Eccliff and Corrie Chen, who's the Australian TV maker, filmmaker, maybe short filmmaker, I think. And they were speaking about sex on screen and violence and what they kind of consumed as spectators, but also what they intended with their creations. And that was very, very interesting hearing the three of them talk about expectations Mm. and limits of consumption putting this film into context of of what we can kind of see today but having Isabella speaking about her film which was 
you know, screened this year, we can kind of see that maybe there hasn't been that much change, I think, with expectations of sex and sexual violence on film. So I think this film is something that should be seen by everyone and indeed film students. Uh, and I'm certainly going to recommend its viewing to a lot of my students, but also will be essential in the, the contribution to a just like broader historical discussion of representation on screen. Mm. I really love this film and I think it's essential. So yeah, that's great. Do you know if it's getting a release or if where, where I, people will be able to see it? I don't know anything at this point, but she um, might have some, no, I have no idea to be honest. Get in touch with us. We'll let you know. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, it's not a feature length at 60 something minutes, which I think in some classifications is feature length. So I don't know whether it will get any feature release or whether it will just go to a television or mm. something, but okay. hopefully it will screen around the place somewhere. Okay, cool. Anders, what uh, did you have any favourites from Myth that we haven't talked about already? Uh, yeah, I just want to do a shout out to Christophe Honoré's Sorry Angel, a film which I really loved. It was um, an expansive, sort of sprawling, sprawling to a point, um, portrait of a man in 1990s um, Paris who is, uh, he's a 35-year-old author, he has AIDS, um, and his prognosis is not great, um, but he starts a romantic relationship with a younger uh, man, a 22-year-old wannabe sort of film student from a sort of, from regional France, I guess. Um, But he also, uh, there's another boy who he's seeing, Um, he has a daughter, with um, a woman who um, clarifies that she's the mother of his um, son. Uh, sorry, she has a, he has a son with a woman who um, he claim uh, who clarifies that she's the mother of his son uh, and not his ex-wife. So he has there's uh, multiple facets to um, Jacques' life, uh, the protagonist, and the film is really good at exploring how he compartmentalizes his life into these distinct. Um, romantic or other personal relationships. Um, What I really loved about the film is it's really nicely uh, shot. Um, There are some beautiful um, camera scenes, uh, camera movements, including uh, the final shot, um, which I found quite extraordinary. And the opening credits um, are fantastic. Um, There's also sort of pop culture um, references, which I found really interesting, like 90s, um, French music, film, TV, um, all that kind of stuff is sort of really threaded into this man's life and his sort of social milieu, I guess, a sort of, you know, a bourgeois apartment-dwelling Parisian. And I really like just the film's, I guess, non-judgmental, generous perspective on characters who are not entirely likeable at all times. And I really appreciated that it let uh, its main character... You know, he was a bit of a dick um, occasionally, to, uh, uh, but the, but that's okay. And the film, I really liked the film's generosity towards Jacques. You know, his personal relationships, there were some great dance scenes um, in it. I don't know, it was just like really intelligent and confident filmmaking, um, which I... Look, I really appreciate. So, yeah, that was a big one for me. You and our friend of the pod, 
JDM saw this twice. Did we you not? We did, yes. I Big <laughs> recommendation. I know. I, it was up there as one of my favourite films of the festival. I think I honestly wanted to rewatch the opening credits. Like, I just really fell for them. And just the generosity that the film has towards its characters, I, I really liked. I mean, it's often being talked about as like a counterpoint to BPM in that it's set in the same time period and it's dealing with queer characters who... Uh, who have AIDS but I think on the one hand that's a useful comparison on the other hand it's not in fact uh, ACT UP comes up the um, uh, the actors organisation comes up in this film and Jacques the main character he's not um, you know out there lobbying with ACT UP the way that the char- main characters BPM are and there's an interesting discussion about the politics surrounding that in the, in um, Sorry Angel which is really interesting so it's really uh, on the one hand there's a similarity but on the other hand it's a very different film um, but yeah, I just really, really liked it. I thought it was really well made. Great. And cool. very, as Joe, um, as, as our friend of the podcast, JDM, said, quite novelistic in in its approach, which I really agree with because it does explore all of these. There's like five or six different tangents to this man's life and the film explores all of them um, really quite comprehensively. Right. Cool. Yes, I'm very sorry to have missed that one. Um, well, I'm gonna. It is getting a. Re- I f- would say it's getting a release. Christopher uh, Nore is a big name, so yeah, hopefully. and also Palace Films, I think, have distribution. I th- Great. Yeah, right. in fact, I'm pretty sure they do. Good to yeah. know. Okay, um, I'm going to give a quicker shout out to two films. Both all of my favorite films from Myth have terrible names, apart from <laughs> Zama. So Hearts Beat Loud is a indie comedy, which is like it's like so indie. It's like the sort of thing <laughs> that I can understand people just having no time for. <laughs> but since I was briefly staying in the same part of Brooklyn this film was shot in and I spent a lot of time in the record store that's the, the set in the heart of this film. I was like, oh my God, what am I, it's, it's Academy Records. <laughs> so basically Hearts Beat Loud is a crap name for this really great film about um, in which Nick Offerman is plays somebody not in, entirely unlike myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um, was, is that had, just because you want to be like him when you're old? Well, who doesn't? Well, I think a lot of people wouldn't mind being Nick yeah. Offerman. <laughs> Particularly the version of Nick Offerman you get in this film, in which he, he's not particularly hilarious like he's known for being. He's just, he, yeah, it's really great to actually see his range. So he, um, he plays a guy who's been, who's been running the same record store called Red Hook, Red Hook Records for 17 years. And he's got a daughter played by Kiersey Clemens. Um, and th- she's uh, African-American. She's got a girlfriend. Her girlfriend, she fa- she's falling in love with uh, a girl played by Sasha Lane, who listeners might remember from American Honey. Yes. yes. Yep. Fave. A fave. Love her. Um, so uh, she's obsessed with becoming uh, a med student at UCLA, but she just happens to be a really, really talented singer-songwriter. And her dad is a f- like failed indie musician from the '90s, and he, they form a band together. And in one point, exasperatedly, she, he says, "What are we going to call our band?" And she's like, "We're not a band." And so that becomes the name of their band. And so they record this song, um, and it becomes this big hit on Spotify. And of course, nowadays, being massively famous on the internet means you don't need to have a face or a name or any sort of identity at all really so it's this strange thing where they're like oh my god we're on number one indie a mixed playlist and um so he's like okay man, oh my god this is great and so he's kind of like trying to live his dreams also he's got feelings for his landlady played by tony collette and his best mate is ted dance and he runs a bar just a couple of doors what? down what this has a mega wow. cast. It's got a great cast. What it, is going on? Yeah, so I don't know like nobody. I haven't heard anybody talk about this. No. I mean, it, it's it seemed it just it should just have Sundance and big flashing letters all across it through the whole thing because it's so Sundancey. Um, but yeah, it's great. It's really funny. It's really kind of poignant. It does. It gives you this really predictable setup where like, oh my god, they've got a great song. They're getting famous. What it's going to go from A to B, and it doesn't. And it's just it doesn't. It doesn't in a really interesting way. 
Um, so Fantastic. I don't know if this has a, pr- a release date yet, but I would definitely Can recommend Can I it. just interject and say, like, speaking of Sasha Lane, also can recommend the excellent Miseducation of Cameron Post, directed by Desiree Ak- Akavan, mm-hmm. which is out through Rialto Distribution on September 6th. Good. So if you missed okay. that at MIF, then you will get a chance to see it in Australia. Great. Okay. Anyway, and Sasha Lane, like, represent. Yeah, amazing. represent. Yeah. Cool. Is that but film still growing on you, American Honey? Oh, yeah. I love what do you mean, growing? Well, because I remember Anders would say, like, oh, well, I remember if you go back and listen to our review of it, people, we're kind of like, like it a lot. We but we're loved not like, it. But then we over time, it? you've been. You've been oh, you've, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, actually. We this, bought it on yeah. Blu ray. Yeah, we did. It's wonderful <laughs> to watch on Blu ray, yeah. as I have several times. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a wonderful film. She's great, though. She yeah, she is. That film. Yeah, God, what casting, my God. I know. Yeah, yeah. Even Shia LaBeouf is fine in that film. Yeah. I like him in that film. I'm I'm yeah. growing on him. Some of his like stunt, um, you know, <laughs> life art stunts I have come to respect. He hasn't really done much. Oh no, isn't he acting as his dad in some biopic about himself? Oh, was that he Franklin? got married oh, on like a live stream. He live streamed oh, his wedding oh, in Vegas. God, really? Like amazing. Anyway. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to do a quick shout out to um, a film that's coming out on October 25th, which is Lean on Pete, um, directed by Andrew Haig, who did Weekend and 45 Years. Um, his new film, he like leaves the UK and goes to America to adapt Willie Lawton's novel. And Lean on Pete, I think, is another crap name for a film, but it, it is the name of a horse that is a particularly central figure in this film. It also it acts as a calling card for Charlie Plummer, who plays a 15-year-old boy who kind of develops this affection for this working in these like race court with these racehorses. And Lean on Pete is a very average racehorse um, who's owned by Steve Buscemi, who's like can only seem to play irascible, and he's never played better, more irascible character. Um, he's got a, he's except go- for in Boardwalk Empire. Oh, good call. Actually, yeah, he's very <laughs> irascible in that. But um, his girlfriend here is played by Chloe Sevigny, and he be- she becomes good friends with Charlie Plummer's character Charlie. Um, and then it seems to be like this horse and his boy, boy and his horse sort of relationship film, and then it just becomes much more American Honey. You start leaving the racetracks of o- Oregon and going and getting some staggeringly beautiful footage of being really, really poor in Idaho and Montana and um, Wyoming. And as he kind of has this journey through America and it becomes this thing where it's not really poverty so much. It's not just about being poor because all these horrible things happen to him. But at the same time, there's this complete strength of character. And Charlie Plummer's face just is transformed throughout this film. I thought it was wonderful. Interesting. And I totally recommend it. Yeah, it is really really unexpected film. to watch it. Yeah, it didn't have the yeah. A lot of people have criticised of having this sort of art house distance, mm. which Andrew Haig does kind of do, seems to observe things more than put you up in people's faces and gives you big emotional cathartic scenes. He doesn't really do that. He kind of like observes stuff, and I thought it worked really well. But other people don't agree. Interesting. Anyway, I still recommend Lean on Peter. Fantastic. I just wanted to do a very brief uh, shout out to Ryuchi Sakamoto. Coda, which is a wonderful sort of beguiling documentary, a sort of gentle portrait of this guy who's uh, a sort of famed composer. He's composed a lot of music for Bertolucci, for um, all sorts of other filmmakers, and he's a very talented pianist in his own right. Um, uh, what an, it, This is a really interesting documentary. There's none, none of the talking heads. No, I went into this not really knowing that this guy existed. Sorry, no offence. But um, <laughs> and, and the film did not uh, bring me up to speed. So I, it's, uh, it either assumes a knowledge or that you're fine with sort of just sort of... I guess it, as the film goes on, you learn. Because Does that it, mean it's more about his music than him? Uh, well... <sighs> 
no it's 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 a bit of both um and there but there are lots of clips from like films that he's scored and you see him composing um but really really interesting it rather sort of expertly presents his creative process all um on him no other really no other figures are interviewed or even come into um the frame really he he lives at least on the evidence of this film quite a sort of solitary but very artistically fulfilling life um and it's really interesting he uh, you know goes and visits antarctica to like make noise like in icebergs and all that kind of stuff and yeah it was just a wonderful sort of sensitive documentary so i loved that one and i really quite like terrell as well sebastian silver that was one of your like most looking forward to yeah 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 yeah. and it it um it I thought reached the hype. It um, play it does play kind of like a psychologically realist, I guess maybe take on similar themes uh, themes to both Get Out and his previous film Magic Magic. So you have one character who's uh, sort of an outsider um, who joins this group of people who have pre existing relationships. Uh, in this film, the people with the pre existing relationships are all like thirty something bros who are like broing out in a cabin. Because uh, one of the bros has turned his <laughs> birthday. Um, Can you say bro again? I, <laughs> bro. Uh, and uh, so the main character, Tyrone, is a black man and everyone else is white except for one Argentinian man. Um, so it becomes like this exquisitely awkward p- portrait of whiteness in a way. They love R.E.M. And so R.E.M. becomes like this, cult- <laughs> this cultural signifier for whiteness um, in a hilarious but also quite... Yeah, uh, spot on alienating actually. kind of way. Yeah, 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 it was very well well done. Um, and the awkwardness, it just builds and builds. It's a very, it's a delightfully awkward film. Happy as Lazarus. Has happy as Lazarus. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and it, you know, it's quite, it's quite good. And I really, what I liked is that it does throw sort of liberal, white liberal, um, like sanctimony into you know our own faces i guess um because like these bros like uh they have this general's donald trump pinata that i like hack at with like so they're clearly like a liberal you know but still very very alienating and very mm. like my god this was the, this was enough to put me off drinking alcohol for life he says this is drinking a gin but uh the um but yeah like negroni yeah Thank negroni, negroni. Yeah, very much. yeah uh it's our signature drink <laughs> it is um but yeah and i thought jason mitchell who plays the main character he was so good at playing drunk <laughs> yeah right it's a work. hard thing to do well yeah. it is and yeah. um it's also got that guy who's in everything now who's like the creepy Creepy white southerner guy. Michael's, oh, um, oh yeah. Uh, Caleb Landry Jones. Yeah, Caleb Landry <laughs> Jones. Oh, from Get Out. Yeah, yeah. He's in this too. He's in Twin Peaks. And I love how he's, if you go to IMDb, his profile photo is him in a suit, desperately trying to look at like anything <laughs> apart from Ill Southern White Trash, which is what he keeps getting cast at. It's a shame because he is, he's so perfect for that. Yeah, and look, um, he does it well in this one. How was Michael Cera? Michael Cera was good. I mean, he was fine. He was pretty good. He His, his like, introduction into the film was hilarious um, and incredibly awkward. I really find, yeah, him and his collab... This is his third film now with Sebastian Silva. And so they've got an interesting sort of collaboration going on. I really like Silva a lot as a right. filmmaker. Okay. I'm not sure how resonant the works are, but they're very, good. They're very sort of good at, like, hot-button stuff. Mm. And he does that quite well yeah i 
feel like it would be remiss of me to not, on behalf of the Colt Cat crew, mention Frederick Wiseman's Ex Libris, which yes. we have all espoused enthusiasm for seeing in the last few months. And only one of us has only managed one of us to, managed to the 10am screening on the last day of festival. I Congratulations, Ello. Thank you. Somehow, I don't even know how I made it to the 10am screening, but I did this morning. Um, and, I, I mean, there's not much to say about this film just in the quick review format. There's lots to discuss in, you know, person or in a, a longer conversation. But basically, it's just, again, an example of Frederick Wiseman's kind of like geographical studies that he does of certain parts of the world um, that involve and include all facets of society um, and kind of everything that makes up a particular kind of minutiae of life. Or in this case, not minutiae, like this is a New York borough-wide um, study of the New York Public Library mm. service. I love his films and... Um, think it's fascinating. Yeah, cool. Okay, so just to wrap up, let's, can we briefly mention films that either disappointed us or th- films that we thought were not particularly strong, given that we must have seen some of these films? I mean, we do a lot of research before we make our mm. decisions because there are a lot of tough decisions to make, a lot of, co- a lot of programming clashes. Yeah, yeah. Um, that sort of thing. Well, my number one uh, disappointment, which I'd actually completely blocked out of my mind until uh, five seconds ago, is uh, <laughs> Diamantino, which people oh, really? were sort of raving yeah, right. about. Cool. But I found a too clever by half exercise in dumb surrealism and high camp. But I think the problem was, to me anyway, I was like, I would love... Uh, so, okay, so it's a film about a sort of idiotic uh, soccer player who, like... You know, he's a dumb football player. Um, and he, he like, lets down his country by, like, missing the, uh, the free kick or whatever. Penalty? Sorry, the penalty kick. Thank you for... <laughs> oh, you can tell I care about oh, good Lord. <laughs> The penalty kick. He misses the penalty kick. Uh, therefore losing the World Cup. Therefore becoming a national disgrace. So, okay, so you got him on the one hand and then you have these undercover sort of um, agents who were trying to work out whether he's um, embezzling money So uh, in offshore accounts. So one of them goes undercover as a refugee boy. It's a woman. She plays a boy who is a refugee who this dumb footballer adopts because he's suddenly become woke to the Europe's refugee crisis. So he adopts this FBI agent thinking... She is his son. Uh, then this far-right um, organisation try and, like, radicalise him into becoming, like, a spokesperson for leaving the EU. So it's, like, <laughs> dumb and dumb and dumb and dumb. But, you know, I can do dumb and I love dumb. But I think the problem with this film was it didn't embrace the absurdity of that premise enough. And so it became this awkward tension between, like, high camp and surrealism and, like, more art house pretensions you know, stunning shots or, like, trying to make a comment, you know, a political comment, but in a very obvious kind of way. And so you're left with this sort of halfway mishmash, like, go all out, go all absurd, go all camp, love it, or take it in a sort of completely art house direction. But this sort of half-and-half thing really didn't work for me. Right, okay. 
cool. Um, I've got a single out, um, Hagazooza with Heathen's Curse, because every single year it seems as though Myth provides something for people who are into paganism and like Wicca and stuff like that. And I'm always on board for that because I'm a huge fan of the Wicca Man. And a couple of years ago, the Witch was one of the highlights of Myth for me. Um, a few years before that, a field in England I thought was amazing. And this year I was like, oh, cool, Hagazooza, Oh, Heathen's Curse looks kind of cool. Great title. Great title. Um, Great and title. yeah, and it, it starts off quite well. Lucas Fiegelfeld is the um, director. It's his first feature film. And it basically it's a story set in 15th century uh, Germany of this girl's transformation into being a witch. And so it's broken down into four ominous-sounding chapters, which starts off with um, shadows, then beast, uh, then blood, then fire. And you're like, okay, game on. This is going to be rad. And it turns out to be extremely slow. It's very spooky. It's very Tarkovsky. It's very kind of gorgeously framed. And the story is almost completely forgotten about, which is fine because it's in a way it's kind of more of a tone poem and it does seem to have worked for other people. See, it has one of these warnings, which is like a strong, strong imagery. I'm like, okay, this could be really interesting. And there is cannibalism and there is murder and there's rape, but it's all done in this so detached way that nothing really has any impact. So I don't know, for me, it was really, I would have left if I wasn't sitting in the middle of a row because it was just so dull. And I thought, I've got other things to do. There's other great movies on. (laughs) So that was a bit of a disappointment, and also Old Beast, um, a Chinese film. Yeah, I agree. I was really I also felt, felt quite weak and very long. Possibly was a good film if it had better um, subtitles, subtitling. But I mean, you could tell that people were a bit bored because that final towards the end, when he's like crushing up tablets to like put in a um, glass of water, the main character and comic he, high point. I yeah, I mean, <laughs> and he can't crush them, and so you just see him like trying to crush. Yeah, the actually, that's a very good for like two minutes. I'm like, come on, just crush the goddamn tablet. <laughs> We've been here for two hours. Just crush the tablet. Anyway, the audience started laughing at like yeah. how long it was taking. It, it was a good that. analogy for the film itself, it really I think, because it was trying really to make a point was. and it kept. Crush, crush the tablet. Trying and not working. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. Hello. I really was really, oh man, now I'm worried about saying a bad thing about an Australian film and I think maybe I should say something else. What do you think? Somebody's got to. We've got to need to be brave. Good point. All right. I was really excited about seeing... Alina Lodkina's Strange Colours, which has come highly recommended from a lot of other people who saw it in Sydney at the Sydney Film Festival and I was very excited about it. And as you and I had seen a film, a short film made by her a couple of months ago, we went to see Selena Julie go voting and there was a film directed by her called There's No Such Thing as Jellyfish, which in its own way was kind of inspired by the Alice in Wonderland story. Um, filmed kind of partially or for the whole part in Footscray, which was a bit of fun, you know, doing some location spotting. That's an interesting, interesting film. Yeah, Yeah, I really loved it. I loved its kind of discordance of realistic and kind of fantasy-like narrative points and progression, the way that the camera kind of moved and that like assemblage of music and image and everything. Anyway, I loved it. But the feature didn't quite work for me. It seemed as though it needed more to make it a really impactful film. That the landscape, I mean, you know, we all talk about landscape when we talk about Australian film, at least rural Australian film. And the landscape was not even that spectacular to me. I don't think it looked that distinct from other 
films. I mean, and part of that I think was the point because it was, I mean, it's set kind of in an Opal community and so it made me, of course, think of Cuba Pedi, but I think it's maybe on the outskirts of Cuba Pedi or somewhere around there because it's about Opal mining. So it's meant to be kind of an indistinct area. But in terms of the character set up and the way that the characters were drawn, it's about this main woman sort of in her maybe early, late 20s who is... I guess we could say she's directionless because she doesn't know what to do with her life and she's gone to visit her sick father in this remote community. Uh, and so there's some interesting stuff done with her kind of fitting in or not fitting in and feeling connected to a community but out of place with the landscape and that that stuff is interesting but drawn as a whole cohesive narrative. It just didn't work for me, unfortunately, because I was really excited about it. But other people seem to have loved it, so I'm wondering if I need to give it another go. Mm. Um, but I'd be curious to know what you guys think when, you know, yeah. I'm sure yeah. we'll get a, uh, more screenings in Melbourne. So. Well, I will be seeing it at the AFI slash Actor Film Festival, which okay. is taking place throughout September. And Colt Cap will be giving you special insights into that because I'm, along with Clem Basto, one of the hosts of the festival. So we'll be giving you – there's all sorts of films that are showing at MIFF that are also playing there, like 1% and – Welcome oh. to Sunshine and the oh, Merger cool. and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I would be glad to have a look at that because it does sound like a very interesting premise. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. And I am, um, yeah, I'm keen to know what you think. I think she's, uh, you know, there's indications there that she's going to do some really wonderful things. I just feel like maybe the script was a little light mm, in this sense. Okay, cool. Anyway. Right. Interesting. Very. And that brings us to the end of Cultural Capital's coverage of Myth 2018. Thank you very much for joining us on this strange and fun journey. Thank you for listening to us. And I just want to say uh, thank you to Michelle Carey for her contribution to the festival, for being artistic director for so many years. Um, And it is a shame that you, Michelle, are moving on, although it will be exciting to see what Alcosa does and brings to the fest next. But anyway, if you don't know um, our listeners, then Michelle is leaving, moving on from the festival. So um, she's brought some great things to it. Yeah, great innings. Uh, thanks you very much for listening. And why not get extra thanks from us by going throwing some stars our way on iTunes. That would be great. Yes. Thank you. You can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs. And I'm at Eloise Lowe Ross. And we can do that. Mm-hmm.